I don't have FOMO because I just don't. I have fought fear of not trying. That's my whole thing. It's just, I'm not scared to fail. I'm scared to not try because if you don't try, you've already failed. Welcome to Smart Rookie, where we shine a light on remarkable lives and careers defined by wildly winding paths rather than tidy straight lines. Join us as we speak with people who are fueled by wonder, grounded in humility, and perhaps most importantly, forever having fun. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Tallerman. And I'm Chelsea Carlson. To all the smart rookies out there, welcome to our kitchen table. Let's dig in. Since the recording of our episode with Craig, he's done it again and launched another five-letter brand. On January 30th, along with his partner, Robert Downey Jr., yes, that Robert Downey Jr., Happy Coffee was introduced to the world. Available from Target.com and Sprouts, this coffee is not only an energy booster, it's also a community booster. Partnering with NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, Happy is contributing proceeds to aid advocacy, education, support, and public awareness of people and families affected by mental health conditions. I know you guys have an interesting history together, so I just wanted to start with, can you tell me the story of how you guys met so I'm in on the party? I'm pretty sure there was a VC that introduced the two of us, a guy named Doug and it was sort of off to the races. I think you and I met, or he introduced us, and we never stopped talking. And that's probably 20 years ago. I'll just go with yes. I mean, yes on the definite, we've never stopped talking. And I'm trying to remember how I met that VC, or if you introduced me to that VC. I honestly can't remember. But that's the magic of a few more cycles around the sun. And we can't help but ask, what's your favorite cookie? Wow, what's my favorite cookie? Right off the top, I would have to say that it would be my grandmother's concoction that had cinnamon and raspberry jelly and raisins in it. I don't think it had a name, but if I had to go with a commercial selection, I would have to say the first cookie that comes to mind is the Girl Scout Samoa. And to my friend who is uh, at Tate's Cookies, I apologize. I like me a good Tate's cookie, but the Samoa just came into my psyche. So there you go. Okay. All right. We're just hitting you with all the questions right off the bat. (laughs) I'd love to know what's your idea of fun, thinking of that in the broadest possible terms. Anything related to creativity is fun, whether that's trying to actually create something or just admiring and appreciating other forms of creativity. That to me is the most fun. I see art in everything. So that to me is really a reason to smile. I just look at things and I'm always like, how did they do that? Why did they do that? Could I do that? If I did that, would I ever get that good? I want to try that. So just always thinking about stuff like that gets me smiling. Speaking of smiling, you call yourself a professional optimist. What makes that different from an amateur optimist? Wow, these are such good questions. I wish I had a Samoa right now to nibble off for energy. Let's see. So my bride of going on 23 years, she's a clinical psychologist. And she told me one day, she said, you are hypomanic. 
And I thought that sounded terrible. I was like, is there a, a telethon for me to raise money for this horrible thing I've been inflicted with? And she said, no, no, no. It's, it's, if we can find a way to bottle that, it'd probably be a good thing. And I can't say I've never had a bad day because everyone has bad days and things happen to everybody, uh, myself included, that aren't exactly so great. But I've always managed somehow to be very happy that I muscled through something, not because of perseverance or grit, just because, oh, I'm on the other side of it. I just find that we're lucky to be alive, basically. And how bad is bad? I mean, I've had medical anomalies and maladies. I've had family medical things. I mean, I've had business things. Emotional roller coasters. Again, no one goes through unscathed, but I always stay optimistic because I'm like, what's the worst thing that could happen? I know how to appreciate the stuff that isn't really anything other than magical and not lose sight of that. So, yeah, I, I think because I'm always thinking that way, I've taken it from amateur to professional status because it's not something I do as a hobby in terms of thinking positively. I'm very proactive about it. And yeah, I think that's the difference between amateurs and professionals. The professionals are very disciplined about it. So I'm disciplined about being optimistic. I love that. If somebody wants to sign up and get on the path to becoming a pro optimist, what are those first steps? What are those tools that you're using? I think you need a good coach for going with sports analogies. I'm very fortunate that my mother was like this. My father was like this. My bride is, she's practical more than I'd say she's an optimist, but she's very grounded in gratitude, let's say. So that plus optimism works out pretty well. So I'd say find some other people that you can surround yourself with that are also not just la la, everything's rainbows and unicorns kind of happy. That's a little maybe forced, but people that have had some experiences and, and managed to see clear to the other side and maybe can help you see the forest for the trees. I think that's really helpful. Try to surround yourself with that. If you surround yourself with negativity, you're going to find yourself you know, probably wallowing in some negativity yourself, right? So if you surround yourself with people that are more positive-minded, I think that's going to wear off. It's like if you were playing tennis with someone who's much better than you, you're going to get better. So if you find people that are thinking through things and are optimistic and excited about opportunity, that should also help you raise your game. I love that. We asked you what you do for fun. And I've heard you answer this over the years, almost always the same way, that you literally just look around you and you see things all the time. So thinking about that, I'm going to bring it back to what we're doing today and who we are. Chelsea and I are part of a strategy collaborative called Nucleus. And every single time we start a new project, we are boarding a rocket ship and buckle into a vertical learning curve. We consider ourselves rookies every single time. And this podcast called Smart Rookie sets out to debunk the myth of expertise by testing a really simple hypothesis that the greatest minds don't have all the answers, but they do ask all the questions. So what does the term smart rookie mean to you? Wow. I love that. I'm a perpetual rookie. I wouldn't say I'm smart. I'm just a perpetual rookie in that I'm new to everything, <laughs> I feel. And I think being able to step back and say, I don't know, jack shit about something has been the most liberating thing ever because the fundamentals hopefully are in place, right? Hopefully we're curious. Hopefully we're kind. Hopefully we're thoughtful and conscientious and all that stuff. But then you start layering onto that this notion that we don't know squat, right? And I'm going to sound like I'm 
quoting, and, and maybe I am, that famous Steve Jobs Stanford commencement speech, right? Life is short. And once you realize that, you can't take yourself too seriously and you have to give things a go. So I think the definition of a smart rookie is someone who's smart enough to know that they're professional about being an amateur in a sense. And they're okay and comfortable with that. And they're willing to put themselves out there and into something with a very open mind, yet with that bedrock of we're going to be thorough, we're going to be kind, we're going to be considerate, professional, all that stuff. Those are the givens, right? But then we're going to enter into something, eyes wide open. And the only expectation for me when I look at new things is I'm just going to try really hard and try to do something that if someone were to see this thing, whatever it is, whether that's a deck for a client or a new product or brand, when someone sees it, they pause and go, I didn't think of that before. I want an interesting way to approach that. And that for me is, is always the goal. And when someone sees it, they're like, where the hell has that been my whole life? Or that's so cool. I didn't think about that. And it could be the littlest thing. It doesn't have to be a huge thing to actually have a big impact. And sometimes not being an expert opens you up to noticing all these little things. If you're so buried in the minutia, or this is the way it's done, you'll just miss it. And that happens. Groupthink, sure. Legacy, sure. These are things that just get in the way. Well, this is the way it was always done. This is the way it's been done for a thousand years. All that stuff is made fun of because it deserves to be made fun of. It's bullshit. <laughs> so once you realize that's not the way we do it here is based on some other bullshit that someone made up maybe 10, 20, 30, 50 years ago. It's all kind of funny. Being new to something, willingly, openly, actively new to something gives you permission. And permission, I think, is a great unlock because the pressure's off, right? You don't have any preset expectation. So being a rookie is, again, a very fun word because it means you're on the field, you're in the game, which is great, but the expectations are pretty low and you're new. That's great. Being new is very powerful. Well, it seems to me you've invoked that power many, many times. We are so excited to speak with you because you're the quintessential entrepreneur. You founded multiple wildly successful companies. You're a part of Method, Evolution of Smooth or EOS, Hello Oral Care, and you are no doubt working on something new right now. I know you well enough to know that. So it seems to me you keep throwing yourself into the role of rookie. Why and how do you do it? I can't help myself. It's not a compulsion or an addiction. It's just I see some things and I'm like, well, God, I wish it could be like this. And that's enough. That gets me up every day and excited. Well, what if we could try this? I get excited by opportunity and I see opportunity everywhere. And just a funny story, my daughter said to me one day, Dad, let me get this straight. You're starting this new thing and it makes complete sense because it's not a category anything about. It's not a product you ever use. So of course you're going to do that. And I said, well, that's interesting. Why do you say that? And she said to me, so you don't really like cleaning and you got involved with this cleaning products company called Method, which is now involved with lots of other things too, personal care and stuff. And she just starts going down the list and she says, you don't really like snack foods or popcorn and you got involved with this popcorn and you don't like shaving and you don't like lip balm and you got involved with this company and you started this thing and you made shave cream and lip balm that was eos to get started at eos evolution smooth and then she said and you don't really like the dentist 
So you started this oral care products company. So of course, it makes just complete sense that you're going to find something else that you don't really like or you think isn't pretty or isn't natural or isn't emotionally connected or culturally relevant in some way. And of course, you're going to go start that. That's what you do. And I was like, out of the mouths of babes. I never thought about it. But there it was. Yeah, that's it. Just something has to kind of annoy you. And I guess there are a lot of cases. Donna Karen couldn't find a little black dress, so she made one, and that became Donna Karen sticking with dresses. Diane von Furstenberg wanted a dress she could wear during the day, and maybe at night, maybe she'd eat dinner, and maybe she wanted to loosen it up a little bit or whatever. That became the wrap dress. There's a lot of stories like this where someone just couldn't find something they liked, or they saw products or brands that were out there, and they thought, well... I don't know. I can't be the only one who doesn't care for this. What if it were like this? So being disgruntled, but an optimistically disgruntled person, I think is part of it. I love this optimistic, disgruntled inspiration for creation. And people talk about you with the idea of white space a lot. But I notice a couple of times when you were talking about it, you put white space in quotes. And I'm just curious if that's not the term that you would prefer? Or is that just a label that ends up sticking to you because you keep fixing things that are broken? That's interesting. To the extent that there is a quote unquote white space, I think you get there if you create something that's really, really honest and that solves for something that people didn't even know was missing. You know, there's so many great examples of great products that don't really do anything in terms of economic performance. Because they didn't have the emotional quotient, you know, and people have a bullshit meter and they can tell. Why does this matter to me? I've said this before. It's about the magic. And if you get the magic right, the math takes care of itself. And I know a lot of folks focus on the math, which is a, is a code word for engineering, margin, efficiency. All that stuff is great, right? And if you don't find the magic, game over. So... The magic is the hard part. The math is the easy part, right? This idea that you're talking about at math and magic, and sometimes we have clients that show up and they're, and they're looking for the math. And you're like, maybe not the right people for you. There are other people that can do math for you. <laughs> We're much more interested in the magic. Or we need some new acronyms. Maybe MNN, magic, not math, is what we need. Maybe we just need a whole bunch of new acronyms. Yeah, that brings me to something that I always say, and I, I'm pretty sure that you are circling around this space. And I say to our students every year, you have to fall in love with the people your client serves. And I mean madly and deeply in love with them. You have to hold them in the highest esteem. And I know that you are always talking about, even in your LinkedIn profile, you use people twice. <laughs> I like people. Have I mentioned I like people? So I want to know, what does it mean to design things from a love of people perspective? And how does it differ from designing for a love of design? Well, if you just design because you love design, then you could do that in your garage. Go get an easel and a canvas and go crazy, right? Use your hands, use a brush, use anything. That's great. That's art. I think when you're trying to create something for someone else, because art could be just for you, right? But when you're doing it for someone else, it needs to transport. It needs to serve. Whether that's, I want to create a, a canvas that someone's going to look at and say, ooh, that's pretty, or I'd want to hang that on my wall. Okay. But it's serving something. We've all heard this notion of fall in love with the problem. 
because if you really fall in love with the problem, you never stop, right? Because it's very rare that the problem totally goes away. And that then enables you to keep iterating, keep making new, and keep fighting for a better version of whatever it is you're trying to put out there. And I hate the idea of a total adjustable market, but I also hate that notion of labeling. Because once you start labeling, this is our target market. This is our target audience. I'm like, who wants to be a target? Targets get shot at. I don't want to be a target for anything. Plus, it just feels very manipulative and scary. Remember when everything was about demographic? I'm like, demographic? Have you not walked around with your eyes open? I mean, I don't even like using a label like psychographic anymore. You could be 60 and dress like a 30-year-old. You could be 20 and have the maturity level of a 50-year-old. Like 20 is the new 40, 40 is the new 30, 30 is the new 30, which means 20 with more money. I mean, it's insane. So it's all about labeling. And I just think that gets in the way of really understanding people. Because as soon as you start stereotyping, it's kind of soulless, really. So when you create something magical, people will find it. And then they will create a whole genre. They will create a whole subculture. They will create a tribe. They will create a movement. But it's true. When people find something great, they don't buy it. They don't transact with it. They join it. They feel like it was something that they always wanted. And when people get excited about things, they tell other people because I think generally humans like to share. Remember there was Friendster before there was LinkedIn, before there was Facebook. I mean, we look for things and we're looking for connectivity and we're looking for chances to feel good and share. It feels good to share. I've got a note here, and it's going to make you laugh, Craig, because Chelsea is of a slightly younger ilk, fewer rounds around the sun, and she writes Friendster, question mark? Yes, it happens. <laughs> I guess that's the exact point. Yep. Why would you know about that, right? Because it started out as one thing, and other people are like, that's kind of cool, but I can make that better, and they make it their own, and that's amazing. And speaking of making things better... What's the difference between invention and innovation? And what are you doing? Are you inventing? Are you innovating? That's such a good question. If I were just to be logical about it, when you invent something, hopefully, it's something that hasn't existed before. And I think if you're innovating, you're taking something that exists and you're figuring out how to make it more relevant, whether that's from a supply chain standpoint, or emotionally relevant, more people are going to love this thing, or hopefully a combination of the two. And I would say, if it's not also economically viable or economically relevant, meaning more people can afford it, hopefully, or there's more margin in this new thing that lets you operate your business in a more impactful way, then it's probably not really innovative. It's probably just curious and more of a, a folly or a boondoggle. <laughs> but there you go. Thinking back on your previous follies and boondoggles, I'd love to go back and let's hear about some of the follies, some of the things maybe we can't read about. Oh, wow. Any favorites? <laughs> I'll take follies and boondoggles for 500. Let's start right at the top. There are so many. I had an idea that I still hold very dear, which is I started a company taking a look at the relocation space years ago, moving and relocation, because everybody moves and it sucks. And it's not like U-Haul, adventures and moving. Yeah, okay. That's a nice euphemism. Yeah, moving is terrible. So I had written a business plan. I raised a bunch of money. I moved to San Francisco. I started this company. Anyway, at the end of the day, the company was technically it was acquired by a big public company, but it 
didn't touch any of the opportunity as I saw it. And it just sort of became nothing. And it still kills me to this day. So it was a folly. It was a boondoggle. I uprooted my life. I had a lot of people that I'd hired and uprooted their lives. Everyone had a job at a big public company if they wanted pretty early after, but that wasn't the goal. And it wasn't a financial windfall, anything but. And it was definitely, I wouldn't call it a complete boondoggle, but it was a learning experience for sure. That was one, but I have no regrets. I have a guitar next to me at every desk. And that's a great reminder for me of folly and boondoggle because I'm not a guitar player. And it's very humbling to think six strings, but unlimited possibilities. There's 12 notes in a Western classical scale as far as musical notation goes. And yet it's so easy to butcher each and every one of those notes, at least if an instrument is in my hands. So I love that. And I think folly and boondoggle is okay because it takes a lot of pressure off. If you have a folly in a safe space, <laughs> Great. Well, as you look back over one of the most industrious careers I've seen, and I know there's a great forward to come, how did it feel to be a rookie with your first company versus what you're doing now? Is there any difference between being a rookie time after time after time? I was literally having this same topic last night with my wife. And we were just talking because I do have a new thing that I'm working on. And she was asking me, is it different this time? The pressure you put on yourself is the same. Timelines or timelines, deadlines or deadlines, death, taxes, gravity, those things are certainly the same. The things that are different this time around for me are, it's not confidence, it's not experience, because those are just such throwaway words there's a level of competency that we've got. I say we, it's me and a small team of people where we're so comfortable with one another because we've been through enough things together. We've worked together before that we have a shorthand and the shorthand has now passed through so many cycles together that it's really kind of bulletproof. And that's really lovely. There's no substitute for that really. Before we were talking about acronyms, an acronym that I've held near and dear for a long time is FUF, which stands for fudge up fast. We'll use the G version. So if we're going to screw up, let's screw up really fast and fix it really fast. And I have this other thing is I've mentioned this before. People have talked about FOMO and I don't have FOMO because I just don't. I have fought fear of not trying. That's my whole thing. It's just, I'm not scared to fail. I'm scared to not try because if you don't try, you've already failed. So with this small team that I have, we have zero FOMO and we have zero font because we are trying and we have this shorthand with each other and set of experiences under our belt. So we're moving really fast and with an ease that we didn't have before, whereas everything was like our hair is on fire, we're wearing asbestos undergarments, we're moving at Mach 15, it's just bananas. Now we're probably moving in Mach 20 but we're better equipped to handle that speed. We know the playbook. We know the race course. We know what we have to do better than ever. So we're able to move that much faster. So the only thing that's different is we're more comfortable with the pace and the scale than we were the first time. But everything else is still manic and ready, shoot, aim and shooting from the hip. But we're smiling more and I feel like we're in a better place 
at this time in the company's life cycle than we were in the previous versions of my entrepreneurial past. Not to, again, say anything bad about those experiences because they were magic. They were amazing. We're just trying to capitalize on all the things we've been through. That's all. That's great. I'm going to share my screen and we're going to do an exercise that we use in research sometime when we're talking to companies. But we want to try this on for people and see how this tools works for just experimenters. And do I have to sign a disclaimer? <laughs> yeah, we need to do our research. Am speech. I tall enough? <laughs> you're good. You're good. All right. Can you see uh, my screen? Yes. Yes. Okay. So this is an exercise we call acorn to oak tree. So if you were to think of yourself as a person and somewhere on this spectrum, on this scale between number one, an acorn, and number five, this fully fledged oak tree, where would you put yourself today and why? Oh, I'm an acorn. I'm an acorn. So an acorn came off of something much bigger, right? So I'm born of, of things that are bigger than myself and hopefully holding a lot of promise that I too can become something. And the other fun thing about acorns is if you pop the cap off and you squeeze it the right way between the sides of your two thumbs and you blow down to it, it makes an incredible whistle. So acorns can do many things. So yeah, I'm an acorn, right? Because it's the optimistic side of being an acorn is that you could become a big redwood, but you're born of that great thing. So it's cyclical and it's got hope all over it. And it's strong and tough and little, portable. You can take an acorn and put it in your pocket and bring it somewhere else planet somewhere else, which is great. I have a strong suspicion based on your answer that I might know what you're going to say next, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Where do you want to be in 10 years? Are you still an acorn or are you changing? Hopefully in 10 years, we're a big oak tree dropping off lots of other acorns that we love and they turn into other magical things and produce even more acorns. That'd be great. Beautiful. That's beautiful. Okay. So when, if ever, was the last time you felt like an expert? And what is an expert in your mind? I have never felt like an expert. And whenever someone says something to me like, oh, you've had this career, I just kind of, it's a combination of like a cringe and imposter syndrome rolled up. I don't feel expert at anything ever, like ever, really, ever. And I think it's okay. I'm not looking to be an expert in anything. I want to be an expert amateur, right? I want to be an expert absorber of things, but I'm not quite there. When you think you've absorbed everything, then you're just a big fat sponge that sinks to the bottom, right? That's no good. And I think when you, when you think you're good at something, that's probably when it's time to hang it up because then that's ego. It's a lot of other things at play that I don't think are going to lead to creation of anything really great. Oh, this is my life's work. This is my opus. I mean, like, really? That's way too heavy. And people don't want to be burdened with that kind of bullshit either. So I'm like, no, keep it light. Keep looking. Keep searching. So no, I'm not an expert at anything. And again, thinking back to what I said about the guitar, I'm lucky. I know some amazing musicians. I've been really lucky. And artists of all sorts, actors, actresses, writers, musicians. And some of them have won big awards and accolades. And I don't know a single one of them that's like, yes, I've mastered my craft. Ugh, how silly and arrogant. And part of it being a craft is that it can go on way beyond you, that it's much bigger than you are. So the idea that there's a mastery or expert in my old line of work, we would call that a sell signal when I was a trader. When someone's like, I'm an expert. Oof. Okay. Yeah. That's like ripcord. <laughs> I'm out. I'm jumping out. Yeah. Yeah. So who's the first person you remember thinking of as an expert and how did that influence you? 
I had a few different teachers that I really thought were expert, but I had such limited exposure. So I, I didn't have a lot to compare them to. I just knew that I was not in any way, shape or form as adapter as they were. I'm thinking music now in particular, where I was like, wow, how do you that? How could you hear that and know exactly what that was? Have you ever met someone who could play by ear? Let's just go with piano for start. It's incredible, right? There's 88 keys. You know how many permutations and combinations there are to create chords and modalities, just play different octaves. It's this unlimited set of variables. And when you hear someone or you see someone who can listen to something and then just play it, it's otherworldly. And when you see that, you're like, all right, part of that's a gift, right? Maybe they're truly gifted and it comes from somewhere else. Maybe it's because they've so figured out every little nuance that they just know it. They can just hear it. They have not just perfect pitch, but it's like they have such a facility with the technical that they can make it seem easy. So I've known a couple of people like that. And to say it's awe-inspiring is an understatement. It lets you know that there are a lot of things out there that are much bigger than you and the way you think. You could understand music theory, but you may never be able to play like that. And knowing that there are so many people that are so good, I think that keeps me very much grounded with the fact that I suck <laughs> and that I have a lot more to learn and try to do. And knowing that what's the worst thing that's going to happen, right? I'll always try to be respectful and kind and thoughtful. So the worst thing is I learn a lot. It's all good. You teed it up perfectly for this last question, Craig, which is what's the last new thing you tried or tried to learn? The last new thing I tried was coffee. <laughs> I've never had any coffee besides that. I did improv with one of my kids. That was really, really fun. Really fun. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. If you haven't done that, I would tell anybody to give it a try. It is so amazing because it's not just the willing suspension of disbelief. It's about being a good listener and working with other people and working with whatever you have, whether that's a word, a phrase. A location that is thrown out at you that you have to imagine yourself in or a situation. And that is life. You, you can't script everything. And that's why when I hear words like career, I sort of also bristle. What's a career? There are some people, yes, they specifically study one thing and they're like, that's my thing. And like pilots and surgeons, yes, you want them to be singularly focused and expert. And that's great that there are people that have that ability or those abilities to focus like that and become expert at that. And I'm so grateful. But if you're not in that kind of a realm and you're constantly in the world of reinvention, that's what improv is all about. It's constant reinvention in real time. And if you're talking about a brand or a project or a product or a building or whatever it might be, being able to be fleet of foot and thought and create some type of connection with human beings, that's the whole thing. It's great. And then I guess if we can do that over coffee, it's even better. <laughs> so I'm trying. I'm trying multiple things. It sounds like improv is the perfect whetstone for sharpening your inner rookie. Yes. <laughs> Craig, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for giving us your time today and for sharing so much. Really, really a pleasure. Oh, please. Same, same, same. Thank you for having me. This is so much fun. And if I can ever be helpful with anything or to anybody, I always tell people like call, write, text, find me, find me on LinkedIn, and we'll stay connected and we'll stay rookies together. Fall in love with a problem. That's what three women did over a poker game. 
looking at a handful of bottles that said Pappy and Elijah and Johnny and Jack. Where's the bourbon for us? They didn't wait around. They made Boss Molly. It's the best bourbon I've ever tasted. Go get yourself a bottle. Try it. Let me know what you think. Craig Dubitsky really is a professional optimist. Everything for Craig is possible. Everything is happy. Everything's an adventure. And everything is profoundly, obviously a smarter way to do something. And I don't mean smarter in the sense of he thinks he's smarter than other people. He just keeps looking for ways to get down to basics that are just smart, that are just right. His whole attitude of if you see something you hate, you see something that doesn't work in the world. That's just a great business idea. <laughs> it's so great. And it's such a it's such a happy way of looking at problems as like, oh, what a great thing that could be fixed. Oh, another thing that could be fixed. Oh, this is unpleasant. What if it was not? What if it was amazing? And one of the things I have always loved about Craig is that form means something. So, of course, method was really more interesting because all of a sudden your dish soap was in a bottle that was beautiful. And EOS or Evolution of Smooth was in a round, lovely container that was remarkable. Literally, people would remark on it, which was really fun. And then Hirono was an expression that required good oral hygiene or great oral care, right? When you say hello to somebody, the first thing that happens is your breath invades their space. And these kinds of very basic details are magic, are real magic. And I think the channeling of his inner rookie to come that far down to base is what makes Craig remarkable, you know, that he does approach the things that he doesn't think about all the time so he can think about them all the time in new ways. We're trying to explore, like, what does it mean to be a smart rookie? And I really appreciated when he was talking about his whole crew of smart rookies, that they're people that have been through the rookie process together and built that trust that only comes from working together and going through the process a few times so that you have this kind of smart rookie camaraderie of people that you know you can ask the silly questions with. Yeah, it gets to this notion that as a rookie, you're going to make mistakes. But making mistakes with somebody who's got you, who's got your back, doesn't feel as scary. So there were two things I took away from that. One is being a smart rookie. The smart part is collaborating with people and doing it over and over and over again. Smarts is in the room, shared. And the rookie part is doing things you don't know. But when you do things you don't know with people you do know, then there's this accumulated kind of process wisdom. I think in our classroom, we talk about it as physics. There are some things about process, about creating stuff that just hold immutable truths. Craig's, 
you got to love people and you shouldn't put people in buckets. And he and his folks know that. They're smart about that. What they're a rookie at is whatever they're asking people to do next, whether it's brush their teeth or wash their dishes or eat popcorn. I'm on the country representation here on this podcast. So <laughs> I will come through with something this reminds me of, which is growing up riding horses. The saying is green and green makes black and blue, which is if you're a green rider, you shouldn't ride a green horse because <laughs> you will both end up unhappy black and blue. But I'm thinking about that as you're talking about this. Like you can take on the really challenging horse. You can do the really tough problem if you have that experience. So you're kind of a rookie, but yeah, there's definitely something to feeling safe in getting on the new adventure, trying the new thing, feeling with your people you know you are not actually going to feel with. What was this fudge up fast? Yep. Fudge up fast. Yeah. I, that was the uh, edited version. You know, this is our podcast and I've been known to be profane, so... If we want to talk about Craig's principle of fuck up fast. It, it sounds a little bit more like something you would say. Yep. <laughs> the thing that's going to live in my brain for a very long time is when he said something about like, his expertise is cringe section. Don't be a giant sponge who's then weighed down by your own expectations of yourself. That's a type of looking at expertise that I've never heard before that the expertise can be something that holds you back and drags you down and carrying that label around is not helpful to anybody yeah it's beautiful it's so visual the expert is a sponge so full it sinks to the bottom it doesn't rise to the top yeah you're stuck or his when we got into acorn to oak tree he's like i want to be the acorn because i want to fit in somebody's pocket i want to keep going i want to be on the move i don't want to have my big roots down and be stuck in one place being an expert at something. And even when he transitioned 10 years from now into an oak tree, it wasn't because it was big and mighty. It was because it produced lots more acorns, giving other people the capacity to try new things, to fail forward, to fall in love with not knowing, and to do the work. One of the most extraordinary things about Craig Dubitsky, is that he's not just an entrepreneur. He didn't just go out and try to do something and make it the biggest and best. He is a serial entrepreneur. He tries something and he makes it really great. And then he says, what's next? And does it again? And does it again? And he never does it in the same place twice. And being a perpetual rookie is so energizing. He makes it sound so fun. And you know there are late nights and there's big mistakes and there's trying to get investors and there's trying to convince people. And for him, I think the exhilaration of trying and doing it and starting another thing and doing it again is intoxicating. For people that are in that moment of wondering, does this thing exist? Should I be putting it all on the line here? Should I try to build a thing? This is the guy to look at. And you're like, yeah, for sure. Go build a better thing. Don't be bad by the thing that doesn't work. Be motivated and inspired and see opportunity in that. And also how infectious it is to be around people that are so delighted with what they do, whatever that is. And for Craig, that's like a 
like always changing long list of things that he's doing, which makes it even more fun. So as we set out to debunk the myth of expertise, what we hear from Craig is almost a revulsion of the term. And I think he's an expert at being an entrepreneur. He's an expert at trying. There probably are a lot of experts that still learn, that still ask great questions, that are never done learning. I hope we'll interview Mark Moffat, the ant man, the world's foremost expert on ants. But if I know anything about Craig and about Mark, it's that their questions drive them forward and help them build more and more expertise. So have we debunked the myth of expertise? Not yet. But what we do know is that moniker just doesn't seem to fit the people we consider experts. So just a process thing, when we're at the end of an interview, we have these different buckets of things that we're looking for. So we're thinking, what are the highest level observations? We don't need to know what it means, but just what did we observe? What did we hear? What do we want to capture so we don't forget it? We also like to write down any fantastic quotes. I started writing writing down all his catchphrases. Innovate on what you hate. (laughs) I'm going to keep that as when you see something, they're like, that's incredibly frustrating. I don't know anything about it, but I know it doesn't work. Yeah. I like to end an interview in this four, three, two, one mode with what is one thing I will take with me from this? What is the one thing from this whole interview that just got under my skin that's sort of in my brain that I want to run out of the room and tell somebody else. And that one thing from Craig is, I don't know, it's a tie between fuck up fast and font, the fear of not trying. I think everybody should have a little bit of that, that your fear shouldn't be in trying new things, but it should be in not trying new things. Because trying new things, it makes your heart beat a little faster. It puts you on your toes. It makes you a little bit nervous and it just brings you to life. All of a sudden, I can imagine somebody's eyes opening just a bit wider to be able to capture what's going on around them, to be able to see, to expand your peripheral vision. So this fear of not trying, I always say you should choose hope, not fear. And I think somehow Craig was able to put those two things together, right? Hope is acting on the fear of not trying, actually trying new things, being that professional optimist and making things better. This is our transition to talking about our fear of not trying for this podcast, which we have had a lot of fear around. I don't know when push came to shove. We're like, yeah, but what happens if we don't do it becomes an even scarier proposition. I'm always worried that taking up people's time and talking or writing, first of all, getting time from people is a privilege. And taking up that time and being boring, it makes me more worried, more fearful than anything else. And this podcast is such a go for it for us. And so I think my Fear is, oh my God, make sure we're not boring. And my hope is, oh my gosh, maybe having these conversations will help other folks get over 
the fear of not trying. We are. We're doing that just sitting in a recording room and hitting up friends of mine that are really good at what they do and are really special people and don't have a lot of time. Getting over my fear of asking to have these conversations has been a big deal for me. What about you? What fears are you tackling? This is about us and how we work and taking this thing that's in our, you know, weird little back Zoom room research process and busting it out and sharing it with people. It does feel scary to me, but I don't know. I've felt how understanding this thing that we do has changed how I interact with people. Like it's actually changed my real life relationships. It's not just work. It's like like the idea that you give everybody a chance to be an expert at their own life, that you give everybody space and generosity and kindness, especially when you don't agree with them. The idea that you don't come in guns blazing with opinions out there in a conversation because it gives people space. And yeah, it's actually changed how I have conversations with people, just entering into a conversation and letting the other person be the star and be the expert or not the expert, be the rookie. Join us at thenucleusgroup.com where you can book an hour. If you're wondering about something juicy, can't quite crack the nut, we want to hear about it. Come wander around with us. We'd love to hear what you observed in this episode. What did this episode leave you wondering about? What did you observe and what was said or left unsaid? Leave us a voice memo on the smartrookiepodcast.com, DM us on Instagram, or send us an email, smartrookie at thenucleusgroup.com. If you like what you heard today, please support us, subscribe for more, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks. This episode of Smart Rookie is brought to you by brand and strategy collaborative, The Nucleus Group, with special thanks to our first season sponsor, Boss Molly Bourbon. Episode art is by Chelsea Carlson, theme music by Ashley Bradford, audio engineering by Sam Nash, and executive production by me, Gabriela Costa. See you next time.